At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Medicare for All. Opponents say it would be impossibly expensive. Exactly how are we going to pay for it? Robert Pollan will explain. He's one of 219 economists who just signed an open letter to Congress urging passage of Medicare for All. Also, the politics of climate change. We know the world is getting hotter, the storms are getting bigger, and the seas are rising. What we need to know now is not what climate change will do, but rather what we should do. Because for us, climate change is a political problem. Alyssa Battistoni will comment. But first, Julian Assange. Maybe you heard the news. The Trump administration last Thursday indicted Assange on 17 counts of violating the Espionage Act. His crime was that in 2010, WikiLeaks posted on its website devastating material that Army Intelligence Officer Chelsea Manning had copied from Iraq war logs and diplomatic documents. The most notable was a video shot by American soldiers in an Apache helicopter in 2007 that showed them killing at least 18 civilians, including two Reuters journalists on the streets of Iraq, something that should have been prosecuted as a war crime. The video made headlines around the world. For comment on the indictment of Julian Assange, we turn to Daniel Ellsberg. Of course, he was put on trial by the Nixon administration in 1972, charged with uh, violating the Espionage Act because he leaked a top-secret history of American involvement in Vietnam to the New York Times and other publications. They called it the Pentagon Papers. But his trial was halted and the charges dismissed because of misconduct by the government. Ever since then, he's been a hero of ours, an activist and an author. His most recent book is The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. He's also a longtime friend of The Nation magazine. Dan Ellsberg, welcome. Good to be here, John. Thank you. Well, a little history. In 2013, Chelsea Manning, Assange's source, was sentenced to 35 years in prison for espionage. Obama commuted her sentence in January 2017, but the Obama Justice Department never brought charges against Julian Assange. Why do you think they didn't? Well, when you say that these are acts that he's been indicted for in 2010, of course, you're talking about the Obama administration. And indeed, um, Chelsea Manning and, and um, WikiLeaks, by publishing Hillary Clinton, who was in the State Department, publishing her classified cables from the State Department, earned her fury and hostility. And uh, she wasn't the only one in the Obama administration who would have loved to see WikiLeaks, all, all of them, as well as Chelsea Manning, behind bars. Um, in fact, 
she she really talked about droning, uh, droning at one point, either jocularly or not, although that's not a very funny joke from the Secretary of State. So there was no question they wanted to uh, punish him very much. And yet, we, we now know uh, from leaks, I guess, that uh, inside the Justice Department, I think actually from some FOIA documents that uh, came out, that they definitely were trying to indict him, but concluded that they could not indict him without uh, using a a legal theory that would apply just as well to any of the newspapers that had printed Chelsea Manning's and others' uh, disclosures, which is its disclosures. And that included the New York Times, uh, Guardian in England, uh, El Pais in, in uh, Spain, Le Monde in France, and so forth. So uh, they chose not to take on the press uh, directly on that, since in our country that would so clearly be a blatant violation of the First Amendment, which uh, protects or guarantees freedom of the press and freedom of speech and some other freedoms, which would be imperiled by the, all of which would be imperiled by such a prosecution. So they uh, they felt there was no such case uh, constitutionally and uh, democratically as the Trump administration has now brought. Now, that difference is hardly surprising at this point in the Trump administration. Obviously, Trump has as much contempt for the American Constitution and Bill of Rights as, let's say, uh, Dick Cheney did and John Bolton clearly does. So they don't feel bound by that particularly. And the question is whether uh, the media and Congress and the public will rise to the defense of the Constitution now in ways they haven't done in the past. So we're speaking here under the assumption that WikiLeaks is a publisher in the same category as the New York Times. And indeed, the New York Times did cooperate with WikiLeaks. So did The Guardian, Le Monde, and so on in publishing the Chelsea Manning information provided to WikiLeaks. But the people on the other side argue that WikiLeaks is not a legitimate publisher. The Washington Post, for example, ran an editorial saying Assange is not a, quote, real journalist because WikiLeaks just dumps material into the public domain, I'm quoting, without any effort independently to verify its factuality or give named individuals an opportunity to comment. I wonder if you agree with that, that what Assange does at WikiLeaks is not really journalism. Any journalist, including Washington Post, who tells us and tells themselves that they're safe, that journalists are safe, because uh, indicting and prosecuting and convicting Julian Assange doesn't threaten them, is either lying to themselves or lying to the public or both. It's absurd. It's a state of denial. The fact is, Glenn Greenwald has an excellent article I just read in the Washington Post as an op-ed, quoting a decision by Warren Burger in Justice Warren Burger at the Supreme Court in 1977. That's uh, after my case had been dropped. That's after the Pentagon Papers uh, civil case injunction and my prosecution, which ended in 73. And in 77, he made very clear that the First Amendment does not apply only to, quote, journalists. And who designates those? Uh, there's no licensing of them, as Greenwald points out. Uh, it applies to anyone who acts like a journalist. He says the protections of the First Amendment apply to anyone who 
informs the public, uh, basically, which, of course, today with uh, digital means can be virtually anybody. I wasn't aware of that particular um, assertion by Berger, but it, it's very apt here. There's one other problem with this argument that Assange is not a real journalist because WikiLeaks just dumps whole text of uh, yeah. material into the public domain. What happened exactly with the Pentagon Papers? Wasn't that the whole text of a government document? Yes, uh, that's a good point. I have to think about it. I didn't uh, delete a single word or sentence. And the New York the, Times, uh, the, the New York Times, the New York Times didn't didn't uh, vet it and publish parts of it and leave out parts of it, as I recall. I actually, I believe they did withhold some parts in worry that they would be charged with things. But in terms of my giving it to them, just like Chelsea Manning or Ed Snowden, I gave journalists the whole document. Many of my friends say Julian Assange actively helped Donald Trump become president, and they point out that he's being investigated for rape in Sweden, and uh, therefore uh, we shouldn't support him. He's no friend of ours. What do you say to this argument? Very important. First of all, let me just repeat. The indictment of Julian Assange, I have no doubt, is the first shot in a new war directly against journalism in entirely, and certainly investigative journalism, against what Trump calls the enemy of the people, that is the media, and especially the ones that he says are not responsible. They, they publish fake news, like the Washington Post or the New York Times. In other words, it's meant to criminalize journalism, and especially investigative journalism. It's direct campaign against democracy in this country and against its being a republic. And that has nothing to do with Julian Assange's character or practices or status. Now, it's no coincidence that they chose as the first defendant in that case, a man who has in the last couple of years lost the support and even respect of nearly everyone, a very unpopular figure, probably the most unpopular person in the uh, in the media in general. That was no accident. Uh, the administration hopes that by using this law against an unpopular person, the press will dissociate itself from him, the Congress will not support him, the public will not support him. Now, it should have no effect. The First Amendment does not apply to freedom of a responsible press or the freedom of the press that checks its, uh, all of its information carefully with the government and otherwise, that's not what the First Amendment is and what, and what it should be. By the way, I'm not aware that Julian Assange has been accused, even let alone proven, to have published falsehoods. That's actually almost surprising. You know, they put out so much stuff. I, I don't see uh, how they could have avoided putting out some inaccurate stuff, but it doesn't like other, all other journals. They haven't been found to do that yet. But... If we're talking about that, have you ever heard of Fox News and how much digital check, how much checking they do of misinformation by President Trump or the rest of the administration? In the case of Assange, uh, the fact that he clearly, that his revelations clearly helped Trump win is very deplorable. But also, I'll go further, the Mueller report in particular and other things have mentioned tweets by uh, Julian Assange, before 
the election, well before, even before the campaign, that he thought Trump was on balance less dangerous than Hillary Clinton. He actually did have a judgment that Trump as a outsider, as a troublemaker, would, would stir things up here, change policies that needed changing. I think that was a terrible judgment. And the impact of his actions based on that are even more catastrophic than almost anyone could have foreseen. Uh, so I strongly uh, disagree with his judgment on that and his values. I have to say that on this issue, the free, freedom of press issue, if it were it were Bannon uh, facing extradition or prosecution on these charges or Breitbart News or Fox News, I am confident I would be just as concerned and committed to oppose that. And not because I defended what they said, but because their right to say it was a uh, founding stone of our republic. And I would call on all the people who dislike Julian Assange, and that's legion. I would call on them to perceive that those feelings have to be set aside in opposing his extradition and his prosecution here, because to, to believe that that will not clear the way and be followed by the prosecution of people, of journalists who publish anything that embarrasses or criminalizes or exposes any administration, that is nonsense. And, uh, and it's just paving the way for uh, journalism by handout. And it would be an unprecedented assault on freedom of the press in this country. Daniel Ellsberg, his most recent book is The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. Dan, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you for the opportunity. Now it's time to talk about Medicare for All. 219 economists have just signed an open letter to Congress supporting Medicare for All and arguing that it will reduce overall health care spending. But how exactly do we pay for it? For some answers, we turn to Robert Pollan. He's a distinguished professor of economics at UMass Amherst. He writes for the New Left Review, Jacobin, and The Nation. And he works in several countries on building high-employment green economies and on creating living wage laws in American cities and states. Bob Pollan, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Well, you're one of the, of the 219 economists who signed the statement in support of Medicare for All. A lot of people don't realize it, but the government right now pays for a lot of the total cost of American health care. How much is it? When you add up the existing Medicare program for people over 65, Medicaid, the Veterans Administration, uh, the Defense Department Health Care, and other smaller programs, it amounts to almost $2 trillion, and that puts it at over 60% of total health care spending in the country already. Well, you and your colleagues at UMass Amherst at the Political Economy Research Institute did a study of how to pay for Medicare for all. 
private spending right now, I understand, is around $1 trillion, and that's the amount that would have to be replaced by public money. I mean, if you just say a $1 trillion, you think, well, that's going to explode the deficit far beyond the current Trump level of, of deficit. What is your proposal for coming up with the $1 trillion? Yeah. So, of course, it wouldn't explode any deficit if basically all we need is for people that are already paying a trillion plus to private health insurance companies, substitute that for contributing to the the public purse. So there's different ways you can get to a trillion dollars in uh, additional public funds to substitute for the private spending. What we proposed uh, was, roughly speaking, about $600 billion would come from business premiums. So businesses are already paying in the range of $600 billion more. We say that let's let the businesses who are paying their worker, uh, for their workers' health care, let's let them all get an 8% cut reduction in the premiums they now pay. And when you do that, you still get about $600 billion. And then the other two main sources, we propose a uh, sales tax of 3.75% on non-necessities. Now, that would raise about $200 billion. And then we also propose a wealth tax for uh, wealth above $1 million, and that would be 0.38%, uh, and that would raise another $200 billion. So that, those are basically the sources. Your critics say that you have underestimated the cost of Medicare for all because of the people who right now have no medical insurance or inadequate medical insurance. And that's that's a lot of mm-hmm. people. Apparently 10% of residents of the United States right now don't have any insurance. And right. I read about 25% are considered underinsured. Once those people are on Medicare for all, they're going to go to the doctor. They have a lot of pent-up need for treatment, for medication, Mm -hmm. and that's going to cost the system billions more. Have you thought of this? I sure have. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Yes, there's, you know, quite an extensive literature, which we review at length in our study. And in fact, actually, I haven't heard any critics make that particular criticism. The reason being that we deliberately took high-end estimates as to how much the increase in demand would be. We looked at the literature. We looked at people who have criticized other Medicare for All proposal studies, and we just basically took their numbers. In fact, so we estimate that overall demand in the system under Medicare for All, when people have no deductibles, co-pays, out-of-pockets, Overall spending will go up by 12%. Now, by comparison, the study that came out of the Mercatus Institute, the Koch Brothers-based institute, their estimate as to how much overall spending would go up was 11.3%. So we're higher than the Koch Brothers-sponsored study, and that was deliberate. I'm not saying that 12% is the right number. I just wanted to be really certain that I did not underestimate it. And by the way, the fact that the uninsured and the underinsured are going to have access to good quality care now, that's a positive. That's a massive positive. That's how we're going to raise overall health care outcomes on average that lag 
significantly behind most other advanced economies. Well, another one of the objections concerns prescription drug price controls, which you know, most of us think are essential uh, in the United States. Of course, the drug companies tell us that this is going to have uh, a disastrous effect on research in new drugs. The only way we get new drugs, they tell us, is the drug business has to make a profit. And, you know, people like you want to slash those profits. I found a drug industry website. I want to quote them. A treatment that delays the onset of Alzheimer's by five years would save Medicare and Medicaid $218 billion annually. But under Medicare for All, such innovation would never occur, close quote. What do you think about that argument? Okay. Number one, right now the U.S. is paying roughly 50% more for prescription drugs than any other advanced economy. So all the other... Uh, West European economies, Canada, Japan, so forth. So we're already paying 50% more. Secondly, in terms of research, something like 95% of all the spending on research comes from the U.S. government. Hmm. That is paid for by us, U.S. taxpayers. The pharmaceutical companies skim off the top, then they repackage things, they market it, and so forth. The, the uh, drug companies in the United States have the highest level of profitability, as it is, of any industry. And what are they doing with the money that they're earning? The main thing they're doing is share buybacks. That is, they are manipulating their stock price to drive up the price in the short term. They are not plowing it into research. So uh, we aren't going to lose anything in terms of research capacity. If anything, it's going to open up opportunities for smaller pharmaceutical companies to compete and to take advantage of the very, very beneficial research going on in the public sector that we are all financing. Okay, here's another argument, one I don't really know anything about. Your critics say reimbursement rates for hospitals are too low under your plan and that a lot of hospitals are likely to go out of business at the levels that you propose to pay them. And with fewer hospitals, that means patients would receive lower quality care. Lots of doctors and nurses and uh, orderlies will lose their jobs. And all that will be your fault. That's a lot on me. Uh, Well, uh, one thing is the, the bill in the House of Representatives by Congresswoman Jayapal, with whom I've been working, recently, does not have the same cap on hospital reimbursement rates that the 2017 bill by Senator Sanders does. So those kinds of hard caps as proposed in the Sanders bill may not come to fruition anyway. That said, the caps are really not that strict, and uh, we have to keep this in mind as well. When we talk about 12% increase in demand, that means 12% increase in demand for hospitals and for physicians. They will benefit even if they have modestly lower rates per patient visit. They will have 12% more demand. And as we go through in our study, that increase in demand is going to be greater than the modest losses of revenue that they would have when they are uh, asked to charge Medicare-based rates. So maybe 
maybe you're right that your bill is not going to lead to the loss of jobs for hundreds of thousands of doctors and nurses and orderlies. But what about all the people at the private insurance companies? They will certainly lose their jobs under your plan. They will. And as far as I know, our study is the first one to recognize that, take it seriously. We we have studied it quite extensively. And if you if you talk about the administrative savings that are available by transitioning to Medicare for All, which we think are huge, about 9% of total system costs, the main source of those savings are layoffs for people in the private health insurance industry and people working in doctor's offices and hospitals doing the administrative work. And that's going to come with the territory. Now, the thing that we emphasize in our study is the imperative of a just transition for these workers. And we're looking at, you know, something like 1.7 million people. And so we have to have those people protected in terms of, first of all, their pensions. Uh, secondly, in terms of their wages, uh, when they transition to a new job to get wage insurance, relocation support if needed, and retraining support if needed. Those are all components of a just transition. In some ways, the biggest criticism uh, is the one that compares uh, what's going on now in the British and Canadian health systems with what you propose. We are told that the National Health Service in the UK is in a state of crisis and disaster, that there are incredibly long wait times, and that Canada also has incredibly long wait times and the bureaucratic uh, problems. Is there merit in these arguments? Well, of course there is. I mean, you know, we're talking about a system in the United States, we're talking about almost 20% of GDP. In the UK and Canada, we're talking about 10% of GDP, which, by the way, is a lot less. Nevertheless, these are huge, complex systems, and, of course, there will be problems. But if you look at the evidence from uh, surveys on satisfaction levels by uh, consumers of the system in Canada and the UK, Germany, France, and so forth, they consistently come out higher, not lower. People like their healthcare systems in those countries more than in our country. In addition, uh, in terms of outcomes, the healthcare outcomes in Germany, France, the UK, Canada, and so forth, they're all higher than the U.S., even though they're spending roughly half uh, that we are per person. Well, that's all the objections that I've been able to come up with. Have I missed any? Um, well, so I did a piece in the Wall Street Journal in March, and there were 1,896 responses. And most of them just said I was a total idiot. Um, so that's not a really substantive <laughs> Yeah, I, I haven't raised that possibility, but I, I don't think it's it's really relevant here. Yeah. A lot of it is just, you're shoving government down our throat. How dare right. you? We hate the government. On the other hand, you know, you've heard the joke, I hate the government. Don't let the government take away my Medicare benefits. <laughs> right. So Medicare is a popular program. And so what we're talking about is extending it and giving everybody the right to good quality care and saving money, significant amount of money. Uh, That's the idea behind Medicare for All. Robert Pollan, he and his colleagues at UMass Amherst at the Political Economy Research Institute. 
did a study of how to pay for Medicare for All. You can find it online. It's called Economic Analysis of Medicare for All. Bob Pollan, thanks so much for answering all our questions today. Thanks very much for having me on. Now it's time to talk about the politics of climate change. We know the world is getting hotter and the storms are getting bigger and the seas are rising. What we need to know now is not what climate will do, but rather what we should do. Because for us, climate change is a political problem. For comment, we turn to Alyssa Bodistoni. She's a PhD candidate in political theory at Yale and an associate faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. She's on the editorial board of Jacobin. She also writes for Dissent, N Plus One, and The Nation. Alyssa Bodistoni, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Well, there's several new books out now about the future that awaits us if we continue on our present course. These books sum up the state of scientific knowledge of climate right now. The idea is that knowledge will motivate people to support the political steps necessary to change course and and reduce the most extreme possibilities. One of the most controversial approaches is written by Nathaniel Rich. It's a book called Losing Earth. His argument is a a little different. He says, we should have taken action at the end of the 70s because we knew everything we needed to know about climate change by 1979. And he asked the question, why didn't we take the action we needed when we first knew we had to do something? He says we had something close to a blank slate in the spring of 1979. Everyone knew, but no one did anything. Therefore, we are all responsible for the disaster that faces us. And we need to understand why we didn't take action 30 years ago. New York Times Magazine devoted an entire issue to that argument. First time they've ever done anything like that. What do you think of that argument? Everyone knew in 1979, but no one did anything. So it's everyone's fault. It's an argument that I find pretty frustrating because I think it really does a lot of work to cover up the question of who has power in these situations. He's saying, no, it's not, it's not just that we need to, we need to learn the science, which I, I agree with. I don't think we need to just kind of like go over again and again that we know that climate change is happening. We do know it's happening. But his, his response to that, which is to go back and sort of look at um, this period in the 70s and the 80s when a, a pretty small group of scientists and policymakers and folks mostly kind of working within establishment DC politics try to take action on climate change and fail. He takes from this, this lesson of, of a pretty small group of people um, acting to sort of act on, on this knowledge of climate change that, that we did in fact have uh, as early as, as the late 70s. He, he draws from this lesson um, the fact that they failed to you know, enact meaningful climate policies, um, a lesson that you know, none of us ever would have, uh, you know, it's, it's in human nature. This came through pretty strongly in the New York Times magazine piece, um, this kind of suggestion that human nature is, is ultimately responsible for, for climate change or for failure to act on climate change, that we would never accept sacrifices, that democracies are incapable of looking into the future, all of these things. And I think he does a lot to let specifically um, the fossil fuel industry off the hook, political backers that uh, join the fossil fuel industry and in trying to restrict uh, environmental regulations and to override democratically imposed environmental regulations in the early 80s, in that you know beginning of the Reagan era. His argument is for 30 years we knew climate change was coming, but we did nothing. 
you're suggesting we need to look more closely at the we in that sentence. There's you and me, and then there's the people who ran Exxon. Yes, absolutely. He says there's a climate campaign or refrain, um, Exxon knew, and that's saying Exxon, this major uh, oil and gas company, knew that climate change was happening very early on, and there's evidence that they, they did know in the 70s and 80s that climate change was happening. They were doing internal research, and they were thinking about it, and they and, and he does describe briefly at this point um, when the fossil fuel industry decides to start fueling um, skepticism, what we now would think of as climate denial. But he sort of equates that, this, this corporation whose entire business model uh, is threatened by the fact of climate change, by the fact that its product is likely to cause these like really apocalyptic effects planet-wide. He compares that knowledge and, and intentional decision to not only not act, but to defer, delay, make action more difficult. He treats us as being the same as somebody who might have read uh, you know, a sort of newspaper article in the late 80s. And there were, you know, there were made mainstream news articles and reportings and things like that um, in the uh, in the 80s and the 90s. You know, there have been many, many stories about how climate change is happening and going to do something. But, you know, this incredibly powerful company is compared to sort of you or I might read an item in the newspaper and say, oh, that sounds very worrisome. What should I do? <laughs> Yeah, let's look a, a little deeper at this this notion everyone knew climate change was was coming. Let's take you, for example. What did you know about climate change in the 80s? <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, uh, I did not know very much about climate change in the 80s because I was a child for most of the 80s. So, uh, you know, it was certainly not a thing that was very much on my radar uh, until, you know, until the 2000s and really until I'd say something like Hurricane Katrina for me personally. I think that's also uh, a real failure of Rich's narrative, which is he sees he's, he's describing this political story, but it's only of these this very small group of, of elites who are not interested in building a, a larger movement, connecting to people who are doing grassroots organizing around environmental justice or around uh, economic justice or these other kinds of organizing that people are doing in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s that um, could be broadening that message about climate change beyond this small group of people who are trying to just sort of fix it by appealing to like the sense of common humanity or whatever, which does not, it turns out, work. And I want to go back to the argument that maybe it's just human nature. If you say the problem is, why didn't we do anything when we first knew about this at the end of the 70s, one of the answers he comes up with, I'd say is number one answer, as you have said, is maybe it's just human nature. Maybe it's human nature not to take the long view. Maybe it's human nature not to want to make sacrifices short-term for long-term benefits. But if we do blame it on human nature, where does that leave us politically at this moment? Yeah, it, it does frame it as this, this, we all have to sacrifice in the present in order for there to be a future, a better future, whatever, um, which I don't think is necessarily true. Uh, I think there are a lot of things we could do about climate change. And I think the you know, the Green New Deal is trying to get at some of these, but that could actually improve a lot of people's lives in the present and into the future. And thinking about climate change in those terms is, is, I think, really important for countering this kind of narrative. But I think there's also this move some people make where it's like, okay, there's this like really horrific, like climate change is this apocalyptic thing. This must say something about humans across time. It must say something about human nature. The fact that there has been as much warming, as much carbon emitted in the past 30 years as there were in all previous human history seems pretty hard to reconcile with this idea that across all time, human nature has been such that, you know, we would never deal with any problem. Like it's clearly 
a problem that has accelerated very drastically in a very short amount of time. And so we should think about, well, why is that? What, what happened in that time? What are the specifics of history and politics in that time that we can actually think about and do something about? Um, and I think that's really imperative because um, otherwise we just kind of like shrug our shoulders and say, well, this is just too bad. It's too bad humans are sinful or something like that, which I, I don't think is um, either right or politically helpful. <laughs> and if our political task is to change human nature, that seems a little more daunting than fighting the uh, Exxon uh, lobbyists in Washington. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And what people have thought human nature consists of has changed a lot <laughs> over yes, time. And I think thank it you. is pretty historically malleable. So I don't think we should we should have this kind of idea that there's like a fixed human nature that just determines like what we do at all. And I think instead, you know, we need to be like, no, we there are actually are there are divisions and um Certainly not all all people are responsible for or complicit in climate change. That's true. We all do rely on a, a fossil fueled system. That doesn't mean that we can just sort of like wash our hands of it or personally exempt ourselves. We have to change the entire structural apparatus of fossil fuels in which we live. Uh, and I think that is also very connected to capitalism. Um, and so we have to look at that more broadly and and think about how we politically act on that. And, and yes, like... Uh, go after the people who have intentionally, uh, you know, people, corporations uh, that have because, you know, I mean, and they're not, it's not because they're evil either. It's because their business model is based on selling this commodity that has really quite shocking environmental and social consequences. They're not going to, they're not just going to give up and go bankrupt. So we have to, you know, fight them. Uh, out of business. And that's going to be very hard. But I think that the only way to do that is by actually being angry about that. But I just saying, well, you know, Exxon knew, but we knew too. So don't get too upset about them because it's actually, you should look, you know, look at yourself or something like that. I think that's like completely the opposite of what we should be thinking right now. <laughs> get angry at the fossil fuel company. Alyssa Battistoni, you can read her new piece, The Inescapable Politics of Climate Change, at thenation.com. Thank you, Alyssa. Thank you so much. Finally, Chicago elected three Democratic Socialists to the city council last month. One of them is Rosana Rodriguez-Sanchez. John Nichols talks with her on the new Next Left podcast. She recalls her roots in Puerto Rico and how, in her words, today in Chicago, socialism is not a bad word anymore. That's Rosana Rodriguez-Sanchez with John Nichols this week on the Next Left podcast. New episodes every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.
Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.